This episode is brought to you by Masters Full Boot Warehouse. Masters Full Boot Warehouse has every style to meet your western, hiking, and work boot needs. From thick household leather work boots to fine, thin, suede, thigh-high, exultant boots, they have the fashionable and utility boots you need. And right now, our listeners can get a full boot at almost the same price as a half boot. Special fittings are extra. When you order, use the promo code RERED, one word, and you'll soon be walking around in a pair of stylish or highly functional boots that will have admiring strangers saying, hey, that looks like my sister's legs. And thank you, Masters Full Boot Warehouse, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf Podcast. Okay, you ready? Um, yeah. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Yeah, okay. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we've read these books. We're going to try and understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. So we got a lot of comments about our episode last week. Which is good and bad. (laughs) No, no, it's always good. (laughs) We have to talk about it. (laughs) So we have some offers for Errata. Hey, you was wrong. You was wrong. You was wrong. Uh, Stephen Frug says, And I can do the truth. I think you got muddled in your discussion of the paragraph, which begins, the necropolis has never seemed a city of death to me. You talk, at least at one point, as if the purple flowers are the blue ones in the river, but the purple flowers are specifically identified as roses, the blue as nenophar. And he's right about that. And I'll totally take responsibility. That was probably a couple of things. Uh, one, when I get excited, I start making associations in my head that don't necessarily get explained. <laughs> and so I was probably crossing some things. Also, I probably, to be honest, edited a couple things out of order last time when, when I'll admit I was splicing some stuff together because James and I were still kind of getting our feet under us uh, when we were recording. So that one and honestly, what you're about to hear are not a mishmash by any means, but definitely not as smooth as I feel like we, we get going. And our, the way we do these, at least especially early on, we tend to record them over multiple times. We would redo some of the things uh, that weren't working out the way we thought they would. And so, yeah, that was. I think that this episode and chapter two are going to be the, really the hardest lifts for you. Yep. And I think, too, when we did chapter two, I think the first time we did it, I had had like some crazy long day or something. And we started, and I think my response to everything was, yeah, I like that part. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that part. <laughs> I had nothing to say. For whatever reason, we really picked up uh, as far as our conversation at, when we got to chapter four. And I, anything I hear that we recorded after that point I, is, to me, oh, yeah, I sound so much better than when we were talking before. <laughs> we're just still, we're still learning how to talk to yep, each other. Definitely. So. 
them. That does bring up one tiny thing too. If anyone ever has problems about the sound quality, let me know because I'm totally an amateur and I, I try to listen now on a bunch of different, but my headphones and speakers in the house and in the car to try and make sure that everything works everywhere. But if you ever get a point where one of us seems way louder than the other or something, let me know and sort of maybe the situation where you are listening because that may help me figure out little things like that. So just, just a note. And I get comments from time to time that Craig sounds so much better than you. Why is that? <laughs> totally. The well, microphone. the reason for that is Craig sounds better than me. Craig sounds like a seventies, uh, late night, smooth jazz DJ. Wait, that's a good thing. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good thing. <laughs> They don't grow on trees. So, <laughs> well, the other thing too is we do have to mention you upgraded your microphone after the first couple. That's that's true. So. Well, actually, I upgraded my microphone, and then but we didn't find out till oh, right. a while <laughs> later that I was actually still using my my computer's microphone. So we even had some fun setting issues like that just before we started <laughs> doing this. So yeah, yeah. every time we had something else, um, we had uh, Ron crown. Yeah. We got an email, uh, email from Ron crown who said, and let me find the one part here, one small question and one correction. And so we'll start with the correction, I think. So he says, one of us described the reference to green moonlight in chapter two as the first time it's been mentioned, but there was an earlier reference in chapter one. As though an Amshapand had touched them with his radiant wand, the fog swirled and parted to let a beam of green moonlight fall. And there I was all excited about the Amshapand idea. And so I didn't even, <laughs> even on rereading, I didn't, uh, or maybe we did mention it, but I forgot it. I quickly forgot it. Or who knows? We may have mentioned it at a later time sure, for sure. all I know. Yep. But he brought up another question. He said, um, and this was one I think worth talking about, um, that in chapter two or in, in chapter one, Severian says, um, I had almost died that day choking in the netted roots. But then as we talked about last time, and as a lot of people assume from then on, he actually did die. Um, and now granted, or in, so we or so say, we often assume, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, the first time he actually, I think we can say dies and is resurrected is when the Avern fight happens. That's right. the, the sort of big clearest moment. But yeah, so that one thing to be absolutely fair about Ron is that, yeah, he doesn't in chapter two say I died. Um, it's definitely a section where you can think about that. Um, but a lot of people, I think, with the passage in Earth of the New Sun, where he goes back and finds the skeleton, wonder what that would mean. But it could also mean something else. It could mean that, you know, maybe he, if he did die there, is what he is now, you know, an Eidolon or a, a you know, a, a clone or something like that that's going around. That would be different from resurrection. So that's definitely an well, I think his I, I think his point is that Severian is confirming that he didn't die. But you know what they say about that Severian? He's unreliable. <laughs> and he may never even have realized that he died if he died. It's a possibility I actually like a lot that he doesn't realize everything that's going on, especially in the four books of New Sun, that there are a lot of points where I feel like Severian may slowly grow to understand some of the backstory that's going on. But when we get to Earth and New the New Sun, a lot of things are presented as sort of fact or as explanations that he might not have had when he was writing the first four books. And Wolf might have actually sort of worked that into the the difference between sort of the narrator of New Sun and the narrator 
Severian True. of Earth of New Sun. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of things that I feel like he may have hints about in New Sun, like his possible resurrection here, that maybe he doesn't know for sure. And I think that's a good way to put it. Um, but that gets tricky, too, you know, when we are talking about what does he know when um, and what can we sort of piece together that he knows or doesn't know. Um, yeah, it gets really it gets really hard. So but you asked, uh, Ron, is, you know, is he being coy? Is he being disingenuous or deceitful? Actually, I don't think when he says he almost died that day, I don't think he's being really coy, even if he has a suggestion or a feeling that he might have died in the river. Fact is, he came out, so he 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 was resurrected. He didn't die in the way that we normally associate with die, which is just being done, right? You know, even <laughs> if he died and came back, he still is alive. So in in a lot of ways, he didn't die. Do you want to take on the, the the green face of the moon? No, that's right. So we had we have to actually add an errata of our own that James realized and let me talk anyway <laughs> and let me go. Uh, but I got very excited again about the fact that it seemed to me like the way he was describing the Undine there was that she was completely green. Well, let's 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 read that again. Okay. It says, "Darkness closed over me, but out of the darkness came the face of a woman." as immense as the green face of the moon. And so what you had picked up on, and I sounded entirely plausible to me, is that he's saying that her face was green, but he's not technically saying that. He's saying that it's as immense as the green face of the moon. However, I want to defend you on this one. Although that is true, it's technically true that he doesn't say her face is green. I think that there's an elusive quality to this uh to this metaphor and it's hard for me to imagine her face coming up out of the darkness of these filthy waters and not being green and when he offers this metaphor the green face the moon it carries over somehow <laughs> over into the thing that's that it's being compared to and it does i it's hard for me to think that her face is not green itself and that it's not implied and i the idea of of her face like a green planet beneath severian with those ninophars with the surrounded by darkness with their light leaves as though there's stars behind them it's i just can't not picture that it does work really well the blue and the green i still like that a lot so you're not you're not necessarily wrong. <laughs> I think I think really you're, you, although you were technically wrong, you are in a sense right. I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take it. Good. Well, we also had um, Jordan Flato, who I know you and I met way back on the Earth List, mm -hmm. also posted in Facebook about the mausoleum symbols, and yeah, it actually did spawn what I thought was a really neat discussion where a lot of people were having. We even got into a little bit about whether you call things white holes or white fountains. Um, but mm -hmm. it's a good one to go take a look at. Got really long. Well, I want to read what he says because it kind of touches on something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really go off at this so, point. James, before you get into it, I just want to point out we're going to take a long, not a tangent, actually. I think it's actually super important, but we're going to spend just a few minutes on this point. Um because we both think it's actually really important. <laughs> and, and so, so bear with us. Uh, it's going to, we'll get to the chapter, I promise, but we're going to spend <laughs> just a few minutes going over one point that, that 
uh, Jordan's piece really made us think about. Yeah, if you get if you're really anxious for chapter three, then you know skip ahead fifteen minutes and we'll be there. <laughs> Not that long. <laughs> you can always come back. <laughs> he what he what he says is quick observation regarding the mausoleum symbols. I've always taken the rose to be at least in part a reference to that other supremely important symbol which defines Severian, the claw. The scene on the beach where Severian discovers that thorn on the rose looks identical to the claw seems to cement that for me. The claw, the ship, the fountain seem like three very archetypal Severian symbols worthy of carving into his mausoleum. Okay. Yes, I absolutely agree with what uh, Jordan says. The rose is a symbol of the claw, which is a thorn, a a simple, common, everyday rose thorn that is stuck in Severian's arm and draws blood. There is a hint when it happens in the Citadel of the Autark that that thorn is the very one that works its way into the ancient past and becomes the claw. The symbol works as just a common thorn, but it is the real thorn and the way it becomes the claw manifests something real. So yeah, the, the rose is a symbol of Christ. And for Wolf, it might also symbolize his wife, Rosemary, and his love for her that ultimately helped to lead him to his faith. The claw symbolizes the claw which symbolizes the conciliator, which symbolizes and brings the new sun, which is the symbol and causation of Earth's regeneration and is the power that works its way back through time to create the conciliator who chooses the claw. So, you know, where does it end that a thing is merely a symbol? And at what point does it become the thing itself to be symbolized? So I think this goes back to when we were talking about the symbols on the funerary bronze, when we speculated whether Severian is discovering his own funerary bronze or that this bronze becomes a symbol for his life because he chose it. And did he choose it because he had a presentiment of his future, that it was his bronze? Did the symbols represent his life because they represented what would happen or did what happened hinge on his veneration of these symbols? And would these symbols have ultimately been reframed in Severian's mind in order to represent his life, no matter what they were? Uh, let me let me draw a couple of analogies we might have talked about already. Later, Severian is going to witness a public miracle. The Temple of the Pellerines, a sect devoted to the veneration of the Claw of the Conciliator, will catch fire and ascend to heaven. And a witness comments on it this way. Oh, it rose all right. When my grandson-in-law heard about it, he was fairly struck flat for a half day. And then he pasted up a kind of hat out of paper and held it over my stove and it went up. And then he thought it was nothing that the cathedral rose. No miracle at all. That shows what it is to be a fool. It never came to him that the reason things were made so was so the cathedral would rise just like it did. He can't see the hand in nature, the hand in nature, capital H, hand. If one presumes that Gene Wolfe actually believed that Magi from Babylon or Persia 
came searching for a king of the Jews based on the observation, the symbology of a star or other celestial sign. What would have been necessary for that to happen? Would the stars have to have been constructed to rise so? At the very least, the ancient science and culture of the Near East would have to have been manipulated in order to acclaim the birth of significance at that particular time. And, in fact, this period was one of cultural transition, the moment of the monumental change of the vernal equinox from Aries, as it had been for millennia, to Pisces. And these constellations are all constructions of the human imagination, but they are constructions that have persisted across cultures and time throughout human memory. Is there something more solid behind them? In Wolf's novel, There Are Doors, I'm not going to summarize the plot. You should read it. Wolf once named it as the novel that came out closest to the way, to the way he intended. Anyway, the protagonist, Green, answered his psychiatrist's interrogations about the reality of the person Laura Morgan and why she keeps changing her identity and roles. And he answers enigmatically. He says, have you ever looked at the sky at night, doctor, at the stars? And you know how far away they are. Haven't you ever wondered why God put them so far away? So I'm going to draw another Christological analogy. The cross is a world symbol, just as a rose is, as just as a Gamadian and a swastika. World symbols represent many things, but what they persistently, rep persistently represent is the sun. It represents many other things as well. Many of the things they represent, they represent because they represent the sun. Well, as Christianity waxed in the Roman Empire, the symbols and rituals of the sun veneration were subsumed into Christianity. It didn't even require any rejiggering because the Hebrew prophet Hosea had said, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. That's Hosea 6, 2 and 3. But does that mean, as certain Christian sects assert, that the symbol of the cross is merely an invasive species hiding in Christian belief, that the crucifixion story of Jesus was invented just to justify the symbol that was actually the point? Well, that's not the way early Christians saw it. To them, they had more than one explanation, but this is one most applicable to what I'm talking about. To them, the point was that when people venerate the sun, it was out of natural inborn recognition of its attributes that were like the thing that deserved worship. So in C.S. Lewis's Reflections on the Psalms, Wolf claimed to have read everything Lewis wrote. It has a chapter called Second Meanings that I would say is something of a commentary for what Wolf was getting at regarding symbols. It's hard for me to imagine it not being on his mind when he wrote the Book of the New Sun. I've, in this new read, I've much more appreciated how the a major theme of the book is the meaning of symbols and the meaning of second meanings. There's not one paragraph in this little chapter that isn't applicable to what we're talking about right here. He starts off acknowledging the risky nature of symbolic divination. He says, some of the allegories thus imposed on my own books have been so ingenious 
and interesting that I often wish I had thought of them myself. Apparently, it is impossible for the wit of man to devise a narrative in which the wit of some other man cannot, and with some plausibility, find a hidden sense. After acknowledging the due of the counter-argument, he goes on to assert the value of second meanings and why. Then he turns to passages in Virgil and Plato that had Christian audiences calling them pagan prophets. He sums it up this way. Virgil and the slave in the baths almost certainly were, quote, talking about something else, unquote. Some matter other than that which their words were more importantly true. Plato is talking and knows he is talking about the fate of goodness in a wicked and misunderstanding world, but that is not something other than the passion of the Christ. It is the very same thing which that passion is the supreme illustration. And then he gets down to business. What He says, what are we to say of those gods in various pagan mythologies who are killed and rise again and who thereby renew or transform the life of their worshipers or nature? The odd thing is that here, those anthropologists who are most hostile to our faith would agree with many Christians in saying the resemblance is not accidental. Of course, the two parties would say this for different reasons. The anthropologists would mean all these superstitions have a common source in the mind and experience, especially the agricultural experience of early man. Your myth of Christ is like the myth of Balder because it has the same origin. The likeness is a family likeness. Uh, I'll stop here. When we get to Severian's conversation with Olton, this family likeness will come up and feed into the sense that a grandson is a symbol of his grandfather, who is a prophecy of his descendants. And just to point out there that what he means by a symbol of something should sound weird when he's talking about a person being, um, you know, it's not a symbol as if it just represents something. It actually is part of that. And that's a big that's a big step that I think a lot of people don't take with symbols. Yeah. But I think that in line with kind of what you're describing here and in line with with a lot of things, I think that's really important to how Wolf is thinking right. about symbols here. Yeah, just. Well, so, so Lewis finishes up this. He says, Christians who think as I do that in mythology, divine and diabolical and human elements all play a part would say, it's not accidental. The resemblance between these myths and the Christian truth is no more accidental than the resemblance between the sun and the sun's reflection on a pond, or that between historical fact and the somewhat gargled version of it, which lives in popular report or between the trees and hills of the real world and the trees and hills in our dreams. Thus, all three views alike would regard the pagan Christs and the true Christ as things really related and would find the resemblance significant. So that's what I thought. <laughs> that, that is, that's, that's what Jordan's uh, comment inspired <laughs> from me. Yeah, that, that, yeah, I like a lot of that. I mean, because one thing I think that sometimes when people think about symbols in this book or in, in Wolf stuff at all, or in or even just thinking about that one famous passage from chapter one about how symbols make us, sometimes I think people get way too simplistic an idea of how a symbol works. And it's it just kind of is a stand-in or a representation of something else. But there is a long, long, long history of um, 
allegorical and symbolic readings, especially with, I mean, with Christian texts, with how to read the Bible um, and hermeneutics, mm -hmm. that is much more complicated than that and, and gets to how similarities and analogies are not just ways that a symbol can help you sort of, you know, get a whole bunch of meanings all together in one place, but that actually the connections and the associations and the analogies that you find in symbols are substantial in, in the most basic way that substantial can mean and that they are sometimes literally connected to one another. And in a lot of ways, Wolf is playing that out. Like when, when he and Dorcas, when Severian and Dorcas are standing and see the, the, the Pellerine tent rise up, Severian talks about how, you know, people often think there are three causes to things. And he talks about a sort of material cause, the, the sort of technical, how does mm -hmm. something happen? Then he has a, a secondary cause, which is um, more about how things are, are kind of related to other things in a more meaningful sense. And then he has the third, which is sort of like the theological meaning or the, the spiritual meaning behind things. That's getting into medieval allegoresis. I mean, the, the sort of medieval types of how you read the Bible, how you read the stories. Do they have literal meanings, um, efficient meanings, or, or sort of causal or related meanings? Mm -hmm. And then the theological or religious meanings. He's, he's pointing all that stuff out, I think, not to just sort of play games, but to really emphasize. I mean, yeah, the, one thing I'm going to get to eventually is, yeah, I've got a whole theory about how symbols work in the book <laughs> and how he's developing it. And whenever you think of sort of anything too basic, like a symbol just representing a meaning, it's way more complicated than that. Also, it's way more complicated when, when Wolf says in the beginning that, you know, symbols make us. Or Severian says symbols right. make us. That sounds like a really kind of direct causal connection that seems waste too simplistic. Um, but he means it in a very sort of deep way, but but it's not at all really straightforward. It's not that just, you know, a symbol caused me to become something. Instead, there in order for that to work, what it means is that in order for the symbol to make you into something, you have to be already connected. And, and partly made up what that thing is. It's longer story. I mean, it's, it's all wound through with kind of how, <laughs> how you talked about it, but I also feel like there's a, and this is maybe where I go a little further and I'm kind of excited about the idea. I feel like there's a real plot level to that. That's, that's more than mm -hmm. just Wolf kind of playing with that idea of symbols here, but actually how Severian becomes what he is, is kind of how that theory of symbolism works, but put into a story. Um, and I don't necessarily want to say more than that right now, but but it it ties way back into what you talked about. And, and I'll just sort of tease that, that I think that Severian is a literal and substantial and, and true symbol that's sort of making itself himself throughout the whole thing. Oh, I think, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really insightful. And all, and the, I, just the idea, just the claw that, that Jordan had brought up the idea that if he hadn't seen, if he, if he hadn't already seen the claw as something important, he wouldn't have seen it as important when he came upon it at the end of right. Citadel of the Autark. Right. And I think people can look at that part and, and sort of have probably feel like they're going to get pulled in one of two sort of simple readings, either that the claw is just a claw because it's some random thorn that he picked up sometime and it got its meaning because of all the things that Severian eventually does. 
or you could have an alternate thing that, oh, it was sort of destined from the beginning that he was going to pick up this claw. The first one just is kind of a reductive thing. It's like, oh, he just picked this thing up and it became associated with him. And that's how it became this powerful symbol. The other one is more of a sort of, you know, there is a destiny to the claw and it will work as a symbol in this story. And so Severian was magically, you know, pushed to pick up the thorn on the thing. I don't think it's an either or. Like, right. I mean, I think that, yeah. that really kind of what Wolf is saying is both of those things are true at the same time, even though they seem contradictory. They're both absolutely true at the same time. The same thing with the tent. Why did the tent rise up? It's a it's like a hot air balloon. There's a lot of they set stuff right. on fire. The heat rose, the air rose up to the top. But that doesn't mean that it's any less powerful of a meaningful you know, theological moment <laughs> at that point. Exactly. And, and I think one thing that happens is that people choose, feel like they have to choose one or the other, like it's either or those things. And Wolf is really working in a way that is saying both a material cause and a sort of deeper meaningful cause operate at the exact same time. And normally we just don't think that way. Yeah. As, as Severian says, things work of them, uh, things work on them uh, of themselves or, or they don't. All. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, that's, I, I really like that you took the time to spell that out because I feel like it's super, super important. And the more I read it this time, I feel like it's important not just to kind of understand a lot of Wolf's ideas in the background, but I actually feel like it's pretty important to understand literally what's going on with Severian. Um, and that's what we'll, we'll work on as we get through it. So that's more of a teaser thing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys for the comments on the last one. That's it kind of Amazing that we got that much just from our second chapter. Please keep it coming. And even if you respond to an errata, you know, if you disagree with what someone else said, please feel free to, to do that too. So we went a little longer with errata on this one, but I feel like it was fun. And that's actually something that James and I had really hoped we'd be able to do is talk about a lot of that back and forth. So yes, we're definitely going to get to the chapter. All right. So shall we go on? Yeah, let's chapter go. Chapter three. Get on. Okay. Chapter three. The Autark's face. So this chapter starts the next day after Severian encounters Bodilus. He finally gets around to studying that coin. He's fed the journeyman torturers, as is his job. They ate in the refectory, which is the name for a dining hall in a monastery. Then he has class with Master Palamon. He'd give a short lecture, and then he'd take the class to the lower levels to, quote, view the work from the preceding night. <laughs> but before he'll get into the coin, we get a little bit more information about the Manichin Tower. It's on the wall toward the back of the citadel on the western side. That suggests that the front is on the eastern side, the front toward the rising sun, the back to the sunset. I don't know that there's a good place to interject this discussion. So we can, can we talk about the meaning of the word Manichin? First, the tower of the yes. Torturers Guild, where Severian is an apprentice. It's called the Magin Tower. It just always struck me as a name that's plausible, but a peculiar stretch for Wolf. He, his names are usually just really good. He's good at the naming of things. Okay, so a Madachin is a dancer in a ritualized sword dance. It's called a conquest dance. They wear ritual masks and costumes. I looked them up on, on YouTube, and they basically look like traditional Native American dress. And it is Native American. Like, is it, do we know if it's Southern, like well, South it's American? Western 
U.S. and Central America, and oh, gotcha. and I guess probably it goes even further down. It comes from from Spain, but you know they're doing their own thing. It's, uh, you know, it's Native American, Central America. You know, so that's the right place, right? Right. And I mean, you mentioned sort of swords and conquest, and of you know, of course weapons will come out but what's funny is that this isn't a warrior tower it's a you know the the fact that severian gets a sword later is when he really kind of gets a different yeah, job exactly just well the word here's the thing the word comes from italian comic theater Matticino. it means madman or fool there's a there's a french term for a madachin it's called a, a buffon which now refers to costumes of the madachin dancers they call them and the Madison dancers are called uh, Madachines. So the word buffon goes all the way back to slapstick character, the buffo in Roman theater. Never mind the details. The point is he took beatings for laughs. <laughs> the buffoon. Yeah. It's like a clown, a exactly. clown character, the buffoon. So, character. so there's, yeah. there's something there well, again, that kind of there still, you know, it's not as perfect as Wolf usually comes up with the, the dance of the Madachins is as practiced broadly among the Indian tribes in Central and South America, it vaguely depicts the conquest of Cortez. I'm, I'm going to summarize from the Wikipedia article because it provides about as much detail into the breakdown of the dance as anywhere else. They're dressed in traditional ceremonial dress and clothing. The chief characters are El Marnarca, who is Montezuma. The captains, there's two to four of them. They're Monarca's generals. There's La Malinche, who represents the woman that assisted Cortez when they arrived in Central America. Here he's his mistress. And then finally, there's El Toro, the heavy, the bad guy. He's played for laughs. The Wikipedia article says he also symbolizes the devil. Uh, There's also Abuelo, the grandfather, and Abuela, grandmother, They have a chorus of dancers that portray Montezuma deserting his people. He's lured back by the wiles and smiles of La Malinche. And then the final reunion of the king and people and the killing of El Toro. All the cultural artifacts that are associated are blessed by a priest. Christians are played by children. So (laughs) first of all, it doesn't... It doesn't seem to have a lot of connection to court, the really the story of Cortez. He doesn't even seem to be the most important mm-hmm. character there. And like I said, I looked on YouTube and and videos of Madachines, and and they look you know they look like you know Native American dances. So much later in uh, chapter eleven in the feast, we do actually see a sword dance at the beginning of the feast of Saint Catherine. Uh, The chapter starts where it says, The day of our patroness falls in the fading of winter. Then do we make merry. The journeymen perform the sword dance in procession, leaping and fantastic. The masters light the ruined chapel in the grand court with a thousand perfumed candles, and we ready our feast. So that's when um, we actually do get a sword dance, and it's just called a sword dance. No doubt. A Madachine dance, right? Yeah, and it's part of an annual celebration, um, and we'll talk more about the feast when we get there. But that's one obvious possible reason why it's called the Madachine Tower is just because these guys do actually do that dance. But it still seems like an odd point. (laughs) 
he he just usually names things so much better and I, I, I would like for it for it to mean a little bit more I guess given I, I realize that there are a lot of characters with Saints names that are rather obscure and and maybe maybe they mean something and maybe they don't but the name of the tower where Zavarian grows up you want it to mean something a lot and I'm not sure it quite gets there it, it, it kind of fits mm-hmm. it kind of fits mm-hmm. it seems to me like the first connection i would want to make i mean if we're talking about something native american is or indigenous is apu Punjau later on um you know we do have severian going back in time and you know encountering um you know an indigenous leader but does that necessarily <laughs> you know have anything to do with this particular dance I, you know i don't know i the, the general idea of i mean and i'm totally brainstorming here but the idea that this is sort of a tradition that has traveled from spain to another culture and its meanings have changed that kind of fits with you know how how much degeneration oh, there it's, is oh in, it's so it's very wolfian that part uh, it's just yeah, the kind of thing yeah. you are, because originally it was called the dance of the moors and the christians so it had another meaning in Spain, but it, I, somehow I sense that it go, it, it predates Christianity. <laughs> that's, that's, it is a question. No, cause I mean, it's, it's sort of funny cause it's one thing that I can come up with a bunch of sort of analogous ways that, that it has connections to things, but not any way that, you know, seems specifically why would the tortures tower be called this thing? Um, I've looked around, honestly, since you brought it up a while back uh, when we were talking off the air. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, and I've looked around through Reddit, through the Earth lists, and people have speculated on different things, but I haven't seen anyone actually come up with a really solid reason of why they think Wolf had chosen yeah. Madison Tower. And I am blanking right now because I'm I'm suddenly afraid that he says something in Castle Otter. <laughs> <laughs> that I was like, I didn't check there before. No, yeah, I've, I've read Castle Otter and I don't. I would definitely remember that, I think. Well, all right, moving on. But that's one thing to think about. I mean, especially in this part where we're starting to learn about Earth as well, since we're talking about Chapter 2, we do learn some more about Earth. It does fit that idea of this being a place where that is very old and traditions have changed and meanings have been lost over time. Um, And so it is possible that, you know, part of the reason maybe that it fits is that it's suggestive, but it doesn't have a particular meaning. Um, that's sort of like a lost meaning, which does seem fitting for Earth at this stage of its. Yeah, are we supposed to believe that that the uh, the Tortures Guild was originally a team of dancers? Are we supposed to? Alternatively, maybe the tower, maybe the name of the tower is just the name of the rocket at the time. It was the the Madachin. That's I hadn't thought of that. But it's that a, be... assuming that they were out to going out to conquer the stars, then. Mm-hmm. It could be something as mundane as that, I suppose. I won't get into the details of the Madachin Tower, the architecture, except that the rooms on the lower stories are more favored and prestigious. They get less desirable the further up you go. There are a series of attics and empty rooms at the very top until you reach the gun room that houses the weaponry that the guild is supposed to use if the Citadel is ever attacked. And he says the remaining pieces too, which is interesting. <laughs> and one thing, just since we know it's a spaceship <laughs> or a rocket ship, one thing I've always wondered is how integral is that gun room to the rocket and how much is that just something of the Citadel? In other words, in my mind, I always picture these as sort of, you know, atomic age rockets, mm-hmm. of just, just traveling rockets. And then these gun ports or whatever were added later. But I suppose it is possible at least here, that they were weapons 
that, that you would put in the nose ships. cone. Yeah. But would you have a? Would you really have weapons at the nose of the cone that could would you know if it's standing up? I could see that be pointing always pointing straight up. But if they're right. pointing out to defend it, maybe not. Yeah. And it didn't make sense to me that it would really be like gunships until he mentions he says that there were the remaining pieces of guns. Now, mm-hmm. of course, that could just be that you know this things have been standing there for so long that the real guns have been, they've taken pieces over and over again. And it could just be another image of the sort of disrepair that this whole world has fallen into. Maintaining those weapons, I, I don't, are there, whether there's any functional weapons or, or not, is, is not really clear. It's not clear that the Citadel has any strategic value at this point either. Mm-hmm. If they are maintaining the weapons, then it's probably the same way they guard the Barbican. It's just make work. We've always done it this way. I don't recall a scene where they test fire the weapons. The they, only time, really cool. right. The only time they actually fire them that we see is during the festival. They'll shoot off a gun. Um, oh, and it's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's this gun. I think it's a different gun that shot out. I don't think it's the one at the top of this. And, and so if I'm getting that wrong, we'll correct it when we get to that point. But that's the <laughs> only time that the guns are ever actually fired is just during the, the guild day celebration. I guess the other thing, too, about the rocket is this is where, if you're reading it for the first time, there's a lot right here that should hopefully slap you and wake you up <laughs> to let you know that this <laughs> is a rocket. He calls it, the, he mentions the propulsion chamber here. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the cabins of the masters, which, again, cabin could well be just a term for a room, but it's specifically a room on a ship. Right, exactly. So as far as just those details, at least right here, there's no longer any sort of question. I, I kind of mentioned that because I feel like in some ways I've always felt like figuring out that this is a rocket was Wolf kind of teaching you how to read him. <laughs> and so <laughs> like, like figuring out you know, what stage and how the clues go until you get something really obvious right here, where it's almost like he's saying, okay, notice that I gave you enough before then to actually put it together, but now I'm going to make it totally clear with a lot of other things. We don't get that totally clear part all the time. Well, that's true. I, I, got through the whole book and never realized that i got through the fifth head of cerberus and then it was only after reading later about uh, the book of the new sun that said oh they're rocket ships well of course they are Mm -hmm. so the real work he says is done just below the ground in the examination room this is uh technically below the ground in the rocket silo so i guess the examination room must have been the engine room of the rocket because it's, it is still on the rocket itself. And the next chamber below is, again, as you mentioned, the old propulsion chamber of the original, quote, structure, as he calls it. He says it's outside the tower. It's in the labyrinth of the oubliette. And right. anyone who has seen the movie Labyrinth knows that an oubliette is a place you put people to forget about them. And it's also the the official definition um, in the OED says that it has to be entered from the ceiling. Oh. So, and of course we do have the steps. We talk about the steps leading up and down all the time. That becomes sort of his, you'll mention that all the time. The lights of the oubliette are, quote, of the ancient kind that are said to burn forever. But he says that some of them have gone out. Yeah. Which is another cool moment of both of things being both true and false which I just, just sort of a moment of Wolf yeah. saying something that is he, he points out specifically. And that's true, except for these other ones that don't work that way. On the morning after he encountered Vodalus, he says, my feelings that morning were not gloomy, but joyous. Here I would labor 
when I became a journeyman. Here I would practice the ancient art and raise myself to the rank of master. Here I would lay the foundation for the restoration of our guild to its former glory. The very air of the place seemed to wrap me like a blanket that had been warmed before some clean-scented fire. It's not clear to me what he thinks the restoration of the torturer's guild would entail. Right. And what that former glory yeah. was. I mean, <laughs> would they just be somehow sending more people to the to be tortured? I mean, that's why you would need more torturers. Right. Or maybe he thinks of them as a kind of like Texas Rangers that if it received proper funding could bring justice to the Commonwealth. <laughs> First of all, I guess the first big question here is whether this is just Severian as an adolescent having moments of grandeur, or if there is some kind of history that he just hasn't spelled out for us. Mm. And of course, we do know later on, I mean, the guild has the secret of, of what it was. And, and personally, I think that it's more than what he tells us later about that we always obey. I feel I've always thought there was something more going on there with that. So yeah, so that makes me wonder here, this is sort of one of those points where he starts to talk about the guild. And I think we're supposed to really start questioning what its actual history was. I think so, yeah, sure. That the guild may be something else that we might be familiar with. <laughs> Back to the story. After instruction, Master Palamon leads them to the examination room. Palamon, as a master torturer, wears a cloak that is trimmed with sable and a mask of velvet. Everyone's cloak, of course, is the color fuligen. It's a color darker than black. I guess we should mention that, you know, when you fold it, you can't really see the folds between the folds, right? It just, it just basically disappears into darkness. Yeah. That's how I was describing it to my son the other day. He was asking for new vocabulary words and I mentioned fuligen and I said, okay, this isn't the technical name word for it, but one <laughs> meaning it does have in a very special book. Um, but I was, I was sort of talking about how, yeah, you can't normally when you look at even super black cloth, you can see the shape underneath it but supposedly fuligen cloth is so black that all it is is just the absence of light at right. that point that you can't tell distance depth anything like that yeah and we also have the masks here we we right. first we finally see a mask exactly and and when he becomes a journeyman that's called a masking ceremony that's when they get mm. their masks and he says that um master palaman had a the protruding optical advice that permitted <laughs> him to see he's physically blind yeah yeah. And so he's got some kind of technology that something that sticks out of, I, I always imagine it sticks out of where his eyes would be. Right. And I don't know how you imagine. I always imagine it on one side, sort of <laughs> imbalanced <laughs> rather than like, but that made me think because there's supposed to be some sort of cyclops imagery there too. Oh. And just one note on the masks too. We do know from later chapters too, that the masks are normally, they do have eye slits in them or at least eye holes and mm -hmm. Oh, shoot, is a Drota or Roach? One of them talks to Severian and says, you know, can't you tell your brothers by their moods, just by their eyes? <laughs> so we do know that at least the masks are are open at the eyes so that you mm -hmm. can see. Uh, a journeyman so on the other side of the door, I think, unlocks the door to the examination room. And there's a woman there who had been a maidservant. The prisoners are called clients. Her torture and questioning include what they call a full boot as opposed to a half boot, removing the skin from the knee down. A full boot was necessary in this instance because Master Gerloise had found maidservants to be, quote, strong skinned. <laughs> it's One thing just to go back a little bit there, he says, the client was put to the question last night. Perhaps some of you heard her. 
that stands out this time, thinking back to, of course, what just happened in the last chapter, where one of the things that Severian, when he's having his either hallucination or as we talked about possible memory, is he hears the woman crying. And mm -hmm. part of me wondered if that's supposed to be connected to this, like as... Is well, that... it didn't happen yet, right? He was... It would have happened at night. Right. right? That, um, the night, very next night, that, that evening. Yeah. Yeah, it's all described. I just wondered, yeah, go on. Yeah, I just wondered because he does he does make the point to say perhaps some of you heard her. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, we heard something. It's all described very scientifically, clinically. And one way someone once put it was that it's all very professional. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's meant to be not. It's not cold necessarily, but it's all just more professional. Like they talk about them as clients rather than exactly. um, prisoners or something like that. And that's the sort of whole attitude that they have here. It's much more. I mean, basically, what we're seeing is kind of like attending physician with residents or medical yeah. students. Well, at least they don't call them guests. So that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Gerlio says. Gerlio says. Uh, 20 minims of tincture were given before the excruciate. Oh, I guess it was, it was, it was Palamon. He says 20 minims of tincture were given before the excruciation and 10 after. This was intended to prevent her from passing out, but it wasn't enough. So they stopped for the night after only one leg and it was bandaged up. In addition to Master Gerlouise, the journeyman Odo, Menace, and Edgel are named. Later, a young apprentice, Eusigenus, uh, along with Drota and Severian, redressed the leg. I think the other thing here is that there's no real malice associated with it. No. And I think that's what you're supposed to be getting here, that, you know, they did exactly what they were told to. They sort of consulted each other beforehand on the best ways to do it with like, you know, so-and-so thought that servant skins were a little tougher, so we should, you know, do this, that it's mm -hmm. all... Um, and it's terrifying, <laughs> you know, in, in that. Um, but it's also, you're sort of, I think, supposed to see both sides of that. You're supposed to, of course, be horrified by this, but at the same time, sort of awestruck by how calmly they're they're just going through all of this. And later we'll see that Severian has learned to be a very competent uh, first aid surgeon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So she's apparently being tortured to reveal the location of her employer, a woman who ran off to join Bodilus. She does come up, Emil, and starts talking again and, and says, you know, I don't know, I don't know. And um, and then Severian pretends that he doesn't know who this Vodalus of the wood mm -hmm. is. Yeah, she says, I, says, I don't know, but don't you know I wouldn't tell you anyway? And that's just <laughs> the wrong thing to say. It's to your mm -hmm. torturer. But definitely at least another note that, you know, there is some kind of revolution of some no matter mm -hmm. how we don't know how large it is but it's that's the point i think too that we get here that Vodalus is involved in some kind of large enough campaign that people are being sent to the tortures to figure it out so right so we're, when we first meet him he could just be one random terrorist but now we realize that he's um yeah he's connected to a larger yeah uh, issue and is definitely on the mind of the autark in the court right he has a he has a movement and when they leave, Severian decides to, you know, like you say, act ignorant. And he asks Palamon, uh, who's Vodalus of the Wood? And Palamon is really disappointed at this question because the apprentices aren't supposed to acknowledge understanding anything that the clients say. He's setting a poor example for the younger apprentices. <laughs> we get reference to Masking Day here. And that's coming up when Rosha and Drote uh, uh, will be made journeyman and Severian 
as the oldest will take Drota's place as the captain of the apprentices. Palamon mentions a time when the members of the guild were made deaf when they became journeymen. He says, uh, do you want to go back to that? <laughs> Which is really interesting to me because they've just come from a situation where they're supposed to learn something from what they're doing. And that always makes me wonder, <laughs> like, how could, if, if they weren't doing, you know, getting information from people. Yeah, I, that's a good, yeah I always wonder about that. Maybe they have a, like a representative of the autark show up. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe it's only temporary. Only it's when you're a journeyman. And maybe if you become a master, then you can be undeafened. I don't know. Actually, you know, we don't know about the technology. Could, exactly. Could well work that way. The, um, so Palamon says, when a client speaks, you hear nothing. Think of mice whose squeaking conveys no meaning to men. And then Severian says, I squinted to convey I was thinking of mice. <laughs> While he's being dressed down, he stuffs his hands into his pockets. Palamon tells him to take them out. And when Severian does that, he realizes he's got Rolus's coin in his hand from the night before. Mm -hmm. Awkward. He keeps the coin in his palm all morning until he gets a chance to sneak to the break in the curtain wall between the citadel and the necropolis to look at it. He looks at it and he sees that it's a gold chrysos. It's not really, but that doesn't matter at this point. We get an overview of coinage here in the Commonwealth. Orichalks mm -hmm. are brass and the smallest denomination. Asimi are silver and the next more valuable. And chrysos are gold. It's a coin that Severian knew about, but he'd never seen. The coin bears the face of the autark. Severian thinks it's a woman's face. The autark is markedly androgynous, as we'll find out. And the autarks are neutered when they fail the test to become the new son. Curiositas Urthus. What do you think of John Clute's theory that the Autarch is Severian's mother? I will admit it's been a long time since I've actually read that. It's in Strokes, I believe, right? Is that the book it's in? Yeah. So here's what he says. First of all, there is the, the reference to is when Severian thinks initially that it's a woman. Mm -hmm. And the way I read, well, that's a bit of a tell right there. I would kind of not be surprised at all if it were a woman in mm -hmm. that sense. Also, you know, the autarchs are castrated, sure, but that doesn't cause them to suddenly become androgynous, mm -hmm. especially, you know, if they're, if they're castrated as adults. Right. Clute points out that the autarch calls Severian my son, and Severian mm -hmm. never calls anyone, when he becomes autarch, he never calls anyone my son. Also, at the end of Citadel of the Autarch, when he talks to Master Malrubius, he's, Malrubius says, asks him, well, do you think that he is a man? And Severian says, well, I, I mean, I'm not sure that he's you know, strictly human anymore. Is it? No, no. I mean, is he the opposite of a female? And he says, no. And so Malrubius points that out because he's pointing out that if Severian fails the test, that he'll be castrated so that he can't produce heirs. But women, you know, women can be, mm -hmm. have it, mm -hmm. hysterectomy, that kind of thing. So you can't, that can still be done if the autarch is a woman. But it's interesting the way Malrubius phrases that. Is he the opposite? He doesn't, the actual term he used, I forget, but basically, is he the human 
opposite of a male. And he says, no. So that's, I, I think that's kind of a tell. Luke didn't point that out, but that's something I think that's kind of important. The problem with it is Marubis says all the time, refers to him, the autark with male pronouns, which is, I think, peculiar. But Malrubius is drawn from uh, Severian's brain, his, his memories of Master Malrubius. Right. I don't, I'm not sure how much Malrubius can say that about the autark that Severian doesn't recognize. But then again, Malrubius gives Severian a lot of information that he doesn't know about all of, the, of unique information. Right. So I, I kind of like the idea that the Autark is a woman, but then I'm the one who says that Batira Incas in the Book of the Long Sun is a woman. So, you know, <laughs> consider the stores. What we do know is that every time he looks at this coin, the first thing he always says is at first it looked like a woman. It's always at first it looked like a woman. At first yeah. it looked like a woman. Um, he never says exactly I couldn't tell if it was a man or woman. He always says at first it looked like a woman. And that's, to me, that's that's a little different than just sort of assuming that the autark is, it's just the term for being both male and female. <laughs> androgynous? <laughs> well, my vocabulary, Andrew, thank you. Androgynous, my vocabulary just went out. Now. <laughs> um, but it's different from just thinking that the autarch is androgynous because it's all about how Severian can't figure it out. And he's like, it looked like a woman, but then I thought it was a man. Right. And that's more interesting to me is that sort of not exactly being sure of, mm -hmm. of what he's looking at. Maybe we can, you know, if, when we do get to those parts, there's a, a lot more that Clute offers to specifically make the connection mm -hmm. between the autarch and his mother. I guess my big question with that is how does that, if that's true, how does that actually affect the plot? And that's what yeah. I, I don't really understand. I think Clute's strongest conviction that the autarch is his mother, where he settles on the uh, the autarch, is that he just basically rules out everybody else and he's convinced that she right. must be there. So, <laughs> Right, right. So the one other thing he does see is that on the other side, we get another ship volant, or at least this time just a flying ship. Mm -hmm. And so that image, that symbol is coming back. That's going to be an important point later on to, again, when we think about, did Severian set himself up to right. sort of recognize these symbols? Um, or is, is this chance or is this Severian or someone else setting him up to get attuned to these kinds of symbols. And it is, he says it's the very ship that he sees the very in, ship. in the heraldry. Yeah. So it's the very symbol that he sees there. I like how he reacts to that. He said, it seemed beyond explanation, so much so that at the time I didn't even trouble to speculate about it. So sure was I that any speculation would be fruitless. Like, <laughs> I, I kind of like that idea where he's like, he's so flabbergasted by it. He makes a specific decision not to think about it. <laughs> it's sort of a weird way to, to approach that. And I'll tell you something. Every time I come across that particular sentence, it seemed beyond explanation so much so that at the time I did not even trouble to speculate about it. So sure was I that any speculation would be fruitless. That is so often my feeling upon a first read of this book. <laughs> And in some cases, it still is. But, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But I can't stop turning that coin over to see if something mm -hmm. else triggers. So. Severian decides he can't carry the coin around with him. It doesn't prove that he's in league with Bodilus, but it represents so much money that, you know, it, it would either be stolen or invite interrogation or accusations, grand theft, you know. But for whatever reason, he can't feels like he can't just carry it around. 
but he does he does feel like it exposes him, exposes his loyalties to Modalis. So he puts the coin in his pocket and goes to his mausoleum to hide it. Incidentally, we find out here that Severian took a greater part in the fight than his initial recitation claimed. He had not just prevented the man from using his axe to kill Bodilus. He used that axe to kill the the man. Right. Also, he says that here that the torturers, beyond their duties, aren't supposed to fight in battles, just like with priests. So there's another parallel to the Catholic Church. Right. And that's also, importantly, just another place where we're kind of learning about what Severian, even though he can remember everything, he also doesn't tell us everything that always happens. There are a number of times in here where he, in fact, speaking of Clute, I just sort of glancing over that. He says that one thing that Severian absolutely does is lie by omission Mm -hmm. multiple times. Yeah. And this is one of those cases where we find out he clearly killed the guy. He says so, but he never narrates it. Exactly. In the mausoleum, Severian pries up a paving stone in the floor and he puts the coin under it. And then he uses an incantation that Rosha had given him. One thing before that, though, that I think is interesting is the sentence, the first sentence of the paragraph right before he says it. He says, there was a loose stone in the floor almost at the foot of my funeral bronze. Mm, yeah. In the other chapter, he's said, you know, it, it, it always looked like me. This time he identifies it as my funeral bronze. Now, that could mean my as in belonging to me because this is my mausoleum. But mm-hmm. it's also something that he specifically said. I always felt like I looked that, like that guy. So um, another point where it is that, again, a tell or is that, you know, a suggestion? He was supposed to say the charm while walking around the spot at midnight with a corpse candle. But he doesn't do that because, you know, that's all superstitious nonsense. But he's self-aware enough to recognize that dispensing with the ritual meant that he was growing up. Uh, By the way, a corpse candle, thick candle that you use for wakes. He doesn't go back to check on it, and then a snowstorm comes, and that prevents him from even considering going out there, and he just doesn't. Now we get some clever exposition. Children in the guild start working in the tower, delivering messages, running up and down the stairs, and it's great. They think that they're part of something terrific. It's... Then as they get older, they deliver messages to the other parts of the Citadel. They discover apprentices from the other guilds. He learns that the apprentices at the Red Tower where the fighters are trained, they have trumpets and drums and boots and ophiclidies. Uh, it's like a, it, I had to look that one up, of course, but it's like a, <laughs> it's a tuba. It's a lower noted. Like a tuba or a, it's like a cross between a tuba and a saxophone. And yeah, like yeah, yeah. He sees kids his own age at the bear tower handling these amazing fighting animals. He's already feeling like he got gypped. And then worst of all, he finds out that everyone hates his guild. The work he has to do is boring. The work of the guilds is very technical anyway. It's not the sort of thing that seems to be fun for the kids at the red tower and the bear. And the drudgery just gets worse every year. But then Severian becomes the captain of the apprentices and it's he says it'll start it starts to get better. And then as a journeyman it gets better still. They get better food. He'll never strictly do labor. He'll get money and be allowed to go into the citadel and live it up. The few who get to be masters only have to do any assignments that quote interest them. Mm-hmm. 
But <laughs> Severian didn't know any of that at this point. He does find out that winter means the campaigning season in the north is over. Although this story takes place millennia in the future, their economy is medieval and agrarian. So the fighting follows similar rules. People stop fighting in the winter. But that means that the autarch is back from the war and is going to start adjudicating cases. And so Rosha explains to Severian that means there's going to be a lot of clients coming their way. Dozens, maybe hundreds. Severian asks if that means the autarch has come to the citadel, if he's right now in the Great Keep at the center of the citadel. But Rosha says, no, that would be a big deal. The Great Keep hasn't been entered in a century. And the autarch is in the House Absolute, a hidden palace someplace north of the city. Severian asks, well, where? And Rosha says, the House Absolute isn't someplace. It's where it is. It's the only thing there. The House Absolute is where it is. North, someplace north. Severian still thinks of Nessus as the whole world. And so he asks for confirmation. This is also the first time we learn that the House Absolute, whatever it is, is a mysterious, possibly mobile place, yeah. or at least that it seems mobile because of all the, the confusion about where, where it is. And of course, tip, traditionally, it's always said that the court is wherever the king is. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is that idea that this is doing, but it's almost making it literal as well. The one thing too we we get is they we get a mention of the flag tower. That's where the flyer would land, and that one, that's one thing I always wanted to know. Like the flag tower, as if there's a there's one a ship that carries other ships <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. Um, and that's where I always get my uh, that that part. This time made me definitely think of like Coruscant in Star Wars. You know, like some huge you know where ships yep. are landing on other ships that are going into parking spots and things like that. But we don't really know exactly what that. Well, there's a very famous uh, flag tower in uh, the Hanoi Citadel in Vietnam, mm. North Vietnam, as Wolf might have called it in 1980. Mm -hmm. It's an old observation tower. It has three tiers and a tower at the top. On the second tier of the structure, there are four doors on each of the four walls. And on three of the doors, there are inscriptions in Vietnamese. On the eastern door, it says, to welcome the dawn's sunlight. On the western door, it says in Vietnamese, to reflect light on the southern. And on the southern door, it says, directed to the sun, to sunlight. Severian thinks of Nessus still as the whole world. So he asks for confirmation. Beyond the wall, he says, he doesn't mean the citadel curtain wall. He means the wall around Nessus. And Rocha says, that after you got beyond the wall, it would still take weeks to walk to wherever the house absolute is. And frankly, Rosha doesn't really know that. Right. The, the autarch, however, he says, could get to the citadel in an instant by a flyer. If he came to the citadel, he'd land at the flag tower, as you say. Unimportant prisoners arrived, began to arrive. Men and women in groups of 10 to 20 chained together, quote, Important prisoners arrive in armored carriages designed to thwart rescue attempts. Even though these might not be carriages as we think of them, none of the prisoners arrive in flyers. They all travel over land. Each prisoner has a copper tube that provides their charges and sentences. If they've dumped their tube or weren't given one, 
they'll be held in the oubliette until their papers arrive, potentially the rest of their lives. If prisoners swap tubes, then they swap fates, either execution or freedom. It's an undeliberative bureaucracy at the management yeah, power. That's just part of the system, the way he's describing it. That's <laughs> just how it happens. Is if people who are sent to the torturers are forgotten. Um, that it's just once you're on your way there, if if you are told to stay forever or if you're told to be let have a harder or lesser sentence, it's almost as if they don't really care. Um, and so like, like you said, it's on the one hand, it's like a, a terribly run demo- uh, bureaucracy. Um, and at the same time, it's kind of saying that anyone who comes here is really either not important or forgotten. It's yeah, it's, it, it's never personal either. That's the, right. now that Severian is a follower of Vodalus, he's hoping to help his out his fellow revolutionaries. He can't help them escape. That would embarrass the guild, even if it were possible, but he would give them extra food from the plates of less deserving uh, clients or meat from the kitchen. So he finally gets the opportunity to see the papers of the prisoner. He's scrubbing the floor of Master Gurlio's study and uh, Gurlois gets up because he's called away. So Severian checks out the papers on the desk and he discovers to his horror that not a single prisoner that's been sent to them is a follower of Vodalus. It's almost as if the whole revolution is some kind of sham. He begins to feel like he made the whole event with Vodalus up in his mind. Maybe the only reality was the poor guy he brained with the axe. He says, It was in this instant of confusion that I realized for the first time that I am in some degree insane. It could be argued that it was the most harrowing moment of my life. I had lied often to Master Gerloise and Master Palamon and to Master Marubius while he still lived, to Drota because he was captain, to Rosha because he was older and stronger than I, and to Riada and the other smaller apprentices because I hoped to make them respect me. Now I could no longer be sure my own mind was not lying to me. All my falsehoods were recoiling on me, and I, who remembered everything, could not be certain those memories were more than my own dreams. This is kind of what I've been suspecting, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this is, I mean, incredibly important because it goes beyond sort of, you know, clarifying all the stuff about being an, him being an unreliable narrator to the fact that Severian is really questioning anything about his motivations, anything about his experiences that he's had. And even it's almost saying, even though I have this powerful, this power of having a perfect memory, it's still memory. It's still a veil through which I see everything else. And it's reminding you that his perfect memory is not necessarily objective, that what he remembers is just maybe what he wanted to remember. I mean, he, he or what he wanted to see. He said that I recalled Vodalus's voice as he spoke to me but I had desired to hear it and the woman's voice too. The things that I remember might've been the things that I just want to remember or want to have happened. And even though I remember it now, that doesn't mean that it was actually real. And I think, I think the next step kind of touches on that because we get another problem with his memory here. At least I think that's the way I, I read it. One freezing night, he goes to his mausoleum, remove the stone and he looks at the Christos. Okay. And he says, mm-hmm. The worn, serene, androgynous face on its obverse was not the face 
of Photolus, which suggests that he had come to convince himself that the face was Photolus's, or that mm -hmm. the, or maybe he's, you know, this is another event where he describes it one way earlier and then he describes a different way later. Do you think that when he describes it before, he never specifically says that it was supposed to be the, or does he, that it was supposed to be the autarch's face or Vodalus's face when he describes looking at it in, no, he just says it was a woman's face, woman crowned, neither young nor old. And he doesn't identify who he thinks it looks like right. at that point when he, when he finally looks at it. Um, but now the implication is that he thought it was a Vodalus's coin as if that was a special coin just meant to sort of signify his joining this this case. But we, of course, quickly find out, you know, it's supposed to be the autarch's face. It's two things. There's two possibilities here. First of all, when I read it, I just thought it was weird. <laughs> but it could be a memory issue in the text. He doesn't re even remember that he didn't describe it as Vodalus's face. It could mean that he has confused it between that moment and the first time he saw it when he buried it, that he had sort of convinced himself that it was actually Volus's face on the coin. Or it could mean something, it could mean that the, that the coin offered no comfort to him when he looked at it. It was now just a coin. It doesn't prove that he had met Vodalus that night. It doesn't prove anything at all because it's just a symbol to him. It's not a real mm -hmm. thing. And I think that it's possible that that's the feeling he's having now. This passage is also important to me because, of course, we know that in, in the final stretch of things, Severian's going to have to go undergo a test. And that test is going to basically decide whether or not humanity or Severian or the, the Commonwealth or Earth is worthy of getting this, getting the new sun. At least the way I've always read it is that in some way, this retelling of Severians is him trying to justify that, that he had done a good job and that he, he mm -hmm. would deserve it. Whether or not this is actually what he would present as evidence in the test or something, I, you know, it's, it may not be quite that literal, but that's one way that I've always read the whole book is it's him trying to justify why, even though he started as a torturer, he still is worthy. So for the, for him then to admit that all of the things that he might have said were lies based on sort of selfish deception means that you've got a real problem. <laughs> and so you can read it either as an admission of you know guilt and finitude and something that you're then supposed to be able to, to overcome. But it also means that, as he says, he could just be insane and you can't know. Mm -hmm. And that's really the, the trap. But I do think it's interesting that he says that the specific problem is that I couldn't be sure that the memories that I had were my own dreams or that the yeah. things that I remembered were things that I desired to remember. And part of the reason I think that's kind of interesting is it almost, it's almost like there's an out <laughs> in there. If I can explain this for a second, in other words, I've sort of got this idea going about how things that, that Severian wants to happen um, that part of his power is that he can lie productively and that, that he can, and I mean, seriously, like that's one of the, if I have sort of in the back of my head, kind of a, a, a thesis that I'm, I'm kind of playing with right now, it's that, that all the things that happen in this world might be awful and meaningless, but Severian has the power to tell a story or to make a lie, a true thing. Um, and, and that that's kind of what 
what his power is in the end. Um, like to connect it to silk, it's kind of like how silk is able to take a false religion, but because of the power of his goodness or whatever, his personality, he can turn those things into productive things that make them better than what they were. Does that make any sense? No, no, because I remember a discussion of readers uh, talking to Wolf online and someone Mm -hmm. said, why is it that your characters so often tell lies that ultimately end up being true? And he says, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess maybe I'm hoping my lies will turn out to be true. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, so here's here's sort of a bigger question. I haven't worked it out. But one thing I've been wondering about New Sun is if there's a way to tell this story that, that kind of what he's doing is saying, what if the whole sort of religious aspect of what's going on here you know, the fact that he can resurrect people and whatnot. What if it's all supposed to be a sham and manipulation by the hierogrammets and everything else? So it's false when it starts, but Severian can actually make things true. And that, and eventually what you might get is Wolf telling kind of a story that says, even if certain, you know, stories about the conciliator or stories about what the claw can do or resurrection powers or, or, you know, basically salvation stories, they may not be factually true before you have people carry out their meaning. And that this might be some weird moment here where just like Abel is able to make a good system in a world without Christianity, you know, become a good chivalric knight, even though he doesn't have Christianity just by the power of it, he kind of makes it true that maybe something like that is going on with Severian here. Um, and I don't know if that's right or not, but, but it's something that's really like, I read this passage and I'm like, he's feeling bad about lying But then he's also saying things in a way that are like, but I did desire it to be true. And so my lies actually made something happen. They could still be lies, but they might actually be productive lies rather than sort of deceptive lies. Well, you know, there's something that harkens back again to his taking the coin from Vodalus, where he becomes a follower of Vodalus just by saying Mm -hmm. so. There's a Christian parallel to that in where you say that you you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you become suddenly you become a Christian and that and there's something internal in that act of, of what you've done it but everything follows for that you haven't actually done anything as a Christian yet you've only said it something else I, I don't think Wolf would have been aware of this when he wrote this there is a model of the human mind that says that the mind is a storyteller mm-hmm. and that's the nature of the mind. It, it takes disjointed events, disjointed stimuli and makes a story out of it. And that kind of works, but that's a big problem. If you're a scientist who's trying to determine what's true, for instance, what's true about the human mind. If every, if all of the, what's happening is that you yourself are just uh, putting together a story, you're trying to divine the meaning of data, but you believe that, you know, in the back of all this, your mind is just telling a story. But th- that would be sort of like, uh, you know, Severian. Severian tells a story, and then he has the ability to go back in time, forward in time, and make it come true. So that's that's why I read this passage, and I, I feel like even though he's very, on the surface, obviously down on himself and saying, I'm insane, I'm lying that what he's actually kind of doing is describing a real power Mm. that he has. And uh, I don't think at this point we have any clear notion of exactly 
how that power can play out. But in some ways, that insanity and that what he's calling lying here becomes maybe what is something about him that makes Earth worth saving, mm. you know, that he can even in the even in the midst of all this darkness, he's able to to lie himself into a better place and lie his commonwealth into a better country and, you know, lie his way into the autarky and become a good autark. Yeah. So that's kind of where, where, where I'm thinking about it. That's all that's, that's all why I read this passage this time. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not just, it's not like him saying, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm a bad guy and you should watch out for me. I actually feel like it's kind of, it's working in the opposite way. And that's the end of chapter three. He's very, he's got a whole lot of uh, exposition in this. We find out a lot mm -hmm. about the life of a, a torturous apprentice, but this is all part of the, the enjoyment of walking through this crazy world that Wolf created. I do know that one of the times when I read it, I still had the image in my head of this being a Hogwarts for <laughs> Yeah. And I was trying to think if, uh, since this is really where we first learn about, you know, the difference between journeymen and masters and right. apprentices, if that sort of different levels gave me the sense that it was much bigger. Plus, the one thing I did always think before, I always assumed that the guild was huge. And it was rereading it a couple times ago and really it hit home. I think it's in the first chapter or two where he says, you know, there were only about 20 journeymen right. around. And it just seems so <laughs> tiny compared to what I actually measured. And there's only three functioning levels, right, in the Oubliette. Right. Because Drutt says at one point we might have to open up the fourth. And then when he actually does go down and look at the fourth in the next chapter, it's just a rotted mess. Yeah, there's no way of being cleaned up. And it's hard to believe when it was ever used for anything if it's got if that if those tunnels down there were still being used. Okay, well we should save that for next week because we have a Curiositus Earthus and it does not come from us. <laughs> Curiositas Urthus. Okay, so we also got a uh, email from our old friend Mantis, uh, author of the Lexicon Urthus, of the Gate of Horn, Book of Silk, companion to Long Sun and Short Sun, and the uh, the Wizard Knight companion, mm -hmm. and you know a lot of other really great stories and 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 reference books he listened to the to chapter one and chapter two and uh, he came in with some really uh, interesting comments he says noodling around with the first few chapters of the new sun after listening to your podcast on chapter two i wonder anew at the names of the boys rosha is fairly easy to say i think it's it is a pretty clear for meaning rock and it's french drota seems german but a puzzler, possibly from Sermain. Hey, he spells it, but I, <laughs> but God help me if I can uh, actually say it. Trutsch, which has uh, forms like trotta. But what does it mean? In English, it means first truth and later troth, which is good faith, loyalty, hmm. rock or faith, troth, sounding sort of Christian. Then there's yada. This is definitely Anglo-Saxon, but it meaning is completely blank to my internoodle searches. That is to say, we know that Gene Wolfe was a name nut. The saints thing is partially true, but it can't be a crutch. For example, I think Rudison and Abba have their names because they are analogs of characters in Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast. 
where one of the characters' name begins with R and the other starts with A. In those cases, I strongly suspect that Wolf looked up saints with those initial letters. But as I was saying, he was a name nut, which is what makes the calling out of the dualist names at the Sanguinary Fields so haunting, since they seemed like the answer to real names we would recognize. Which brings us back to the name Severian. In the Commonwealth, it's a twin name, like Agia and Agalus. So while we might wonder at why the master would hand out to Rosha for one boy and Drota for another, everybody in the Commonwealth, excepting the cloistered Severian and the boys, knows that Severian is part of a set of twins. It's a surprise for him and a surprise for us. And we should point out that that actually is something that is in case you've forgotten, that actually is straightforwardly said <laughs> later on <laughs> in the story that yeah, Severian is a twin name. Exactly. Uh, but, and it's a big surprise. It, like I said, it's a big surprise to, uh, to, to us the first time we read it. Right. And then he goes on for the Gormenghast angle. I have a third new son character, the only other one who might be somewhat named after Gormenghast character. So the, the set is Rudison, Aben, and Severian. Naturally, Severian is named after S for Steerpike. He's discussed this with uh, Nigel Price. He says, Nigel is not amused. He can go along with Rudison and Aben, but oh, Severian is a peak too far. Ha-ha! <laughs> I like this theory because when we get to chapter four, I'm going to play my own uh, game with the uh, first letters of names as well. I'm curious because I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> like it's one of those things that it could be, it's one of those places where I feel like it's a really neat creative find, but I don't know how to translate it back into being meaningful. For yeah. The story. I'll have to reread Gormenghaz <laughs> to see if I see something that strikes me as a, a parallel to the, to the story of Severian. So that's the end of the Autark's face, and we hope to see your face next time when we do chapter four. I'm talking about dogs next time. That'll be fun. <laughs> well, at least we think it's a dog. <laughs> he says dog, but does he mean dog? We'll, we'll talk more about that next time. In the meantime, please go ahead and comment on Twitter or Facebook. You can email us too at rereadingwolf at gmail.com. Forgot to say that when we were doing it live. Leave us questions concerns, disagreements, arguments, hopefully not too many insults. Dog videos. But, Leave uh, us dog videos. <laughs> dog videos. <laughs> yep. So, And then we'll try and certainly respond there, but also try to uh, mention you on the podcast and, and talk about your ideas too. Yes. And, uh, please leave a rating on your favorite podcast, uh, platform. And, but with, when you do be sure to leave a comment, we'd appreciate it. So otherwise, we will talk next time when we get into Triskel. Triskel. We'll talk about pronunciation. <laughs> Take care, everybody.
excuse me, burping behind the scenes. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, um, we got to put that at the end of this one. Yeah, you know, that'll probably end up at the end. 